Thank you, Ruth. Well, please pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning and Lord, I pray that we will come with hearts that are open. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work a powerful work in each of our hearts and that we'll be encouraged, we'll be challenged and we'll be willing to respond in a way which you have called us to. Father God, just bless us now as we open your word and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a few shows on TV I try to avoid. Um, there's one that I've been trying to avoid for three years, but this year it got me. Um, I was mucking around on my phone in front of the TV, not really watching it. And you know, they don't have breaks between TV shows anymore. They just kind of flow straight into the next one. And this came on and I hadn't even realised. And before I knew it, I was watching the whole episode. Um, I think it's still, after seeing the ads, I avoided it because I thought it was a ridiculous looking show. I still think it's a ridiculous show after watching a whole episode, but it is The Masked Singer. <laughs> Has anyone actually watched it? No, you don't have to put your hands up. <clears throat> well, there it was. Um, for those who are smarter than I and have not watched an episode, uh, the format is pretty simple. They dress well-known celebrities, or usually has-been celebrities, uh, in over-the-top costumes, and that's just three of the costumes you can see. The celebrity then sings a song. There's a panel of three judges, and they have to try to guess who's under the mask. And at the end of each episode, the audience gets to vote out one of the... whatever they are, and, uh, and they have to unmask themselves. But in order to help the celebrities who are on, or the kind of sort of pseudo celebrities that are on the panel, uh, to guess each of the singers, they have like this clip um, of clues, and they're all pretty cryptic. And like I watch it, and I have no idea what any of it means. But if you've got some background and some context, and you know a bit about the life of the person, sometimes. Uh, the clues are enough to be able to guess and then they are masked and they've actually guessed uh, who it is. Now, I'm sad to say, I think you can think of Mark's gospel like the masked singer. Um, I didn't think I'd ever say that, but I think it is like that. Because in the end, you are given over and over these clues to the identity of who this man they are calling Jesus is. And bit by bit, you start forming this picture in your mind until you get to the point that you say, I know who he is. He is this person. And some conclude he is a prophet. Some conclude he is a great teacher. Some conclude even that he is the promised Messiah. But I think this morning we are confronted with these clues really coming to a place which leaves us where we should have no doubt as to who this person is. See, despite raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead, despite healing a woman from who'd been bleeding for 12 years, despite driving out a legion of demons from a man, and most recently flowing straight into our passage this morning, feeding 5,000 people with two loaves of bread and five loaves of bread and two fish, People still haven't got it. And I believe this morning is really tied in with that. Because later on we are told they still didn't get it. 
They didn't understand about the loaves and the fish. And I think today is really reinforcing the answer to this question, who is this man? Well, Mark begins in uh, verse 45 and uh, verse 46 in in chapter 6. He says this, and I I encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along if you have them. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, immediately... Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people or more with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I want you to understand this has been a long day. You see, the miracle was insisted upon, well, the feeding of the people was insisted upon by the disciples because it had been a long day and they hadn't eaten. And if you remember, they'd said to Jesus, let us send them away so they can go and buy themselves some food. And Jesus says, you give them some food. And they say, where, what are we going to spend half a year's wages feeding these people? You're out of your mind. Which leads to Jesus uh, providing this miracle to feed everyone. See, for the 12 disciples, they'd also just returned from their own missionary journey where Jesus had sent them out two by two. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that by this time, by the time of the beginning of our passage, they are weary, they are probably hangry, they are grumpy, and they've probably had enough. They just want to go home or go somewhere and get some sleep. But rather than sending them somewhere to get rest, we're told Jesus made them get into the boat. Now, that's not an overemphasis. He made them get into the boat. He was the master. They were the disciples. He made them get into the boat and go on to the Sea of Galilee over to the other side of the lake. Jesus then dismisses the crowd And he goes up to the mountainside to pray. Now, I don't think anyone questions that Jesus was a man of prayer. But what we should note here is in all of the accounts of Jesus' life, we're only told three times that he goes out and prays in solitude. And each time he was alone, it's a critical point in his mission. And here we have one of them. The first one was in choosing his 12 disciples. And he probably wondered whether he got it wrong at times. Here we've got this instance. And the third one is in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's facing his impending death. And he pleads with his father, if there is another way, take this bitter cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. You see, Jesus goes in these moments and seeks God's will. He communes with his father. Now, we don't know exactly what he prayed in all these instances, and we're not given anything in this text. But I think the fact that in verse 52, we are told that the disciples still hadn't understood the loaves and the fish. I think Jesus is praying for them. We're told that their hearts were hardened still. And he's looking at his ministry going, my goodness, after all these miracles, in fact, in this context, I can say, my God, after all these miracles, have they still not got it? Lord, what is it that I'm doing next? Where do you want me to go? What are we doing here? Where do I go, Father? 
See, they've not understood his divinity. And in the background of all this, in all the context behind all this, is the people actually thinking that he's come to overtake the Roman rule, to, to get rid of the Roman rule. They hadn't understood he's come to conquer the rule of sin. So in verse 47 says, later that night, Jesus has likely been praying for hours, hours, later that night. A time of restoration and communion. But then we're told this in verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he, Jesus, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So consider the disciples at this point. I want you to just put yourselves in their shoes. And you know what? For some of us, it's not that hard because life can be like this. They have had an exhausting day. They've been out ministering. Now they've been in these big crowds as Jesus' disciples. It is now night time. And the word translated here, straining, is actually usually translated torment. This is no just little paddle on the lake trying to get it against the wind. They are exhausted. They are tired. And the wind here is likely the shakina, which is uh, literally translated the shark, which was a well-known wind that comes and, and it just makes life difficult or almost impossible on the lake. Now, if, I don't know if you've ever tried to kayak. I've tried to kayak. I try to kayak every now and again. But if you haven't had much sleep, I tell you, you haven't got much energy. And if you've got any type of headwind, everything about you is looking for a way out. Now, these guys are on this boat in the middle of the lake. It's been hours and they're still on the middle of the lake, pushing against this wind. And notice for them... They don't have the insight that we have here. Where is Jesus? Nowhere to be found. He has sent them into this. He's probably off having a kip before he starts walking around the lake and meeting him at the other side. See, their greatest need, again, where is this Jesus? Last time, back in chapter 4, when a big storm swelled up on the lake, where was he? He was sleeping. What did they ask? Don't you care? This time he made them go into the boat. Where is he? Well, we know he's looking from dry land. We, we have the insight of him looking and caring. We are told they were going on ahead of him, but the disciples, they didn't know any of this. Now, if it were me... And I think all of us have these moments where we have in life where things are getting so tough, your ministry or just life, and you start going, where is he? Well, for me, it ends up being a, a self-conversation. I've had enough of this. We've just come back from a trip. I'm tired. I'm over it. I think it's time to become the disciple of someone who isn't crazy. I'm calling the Fair Work Commission. I'm making a complaint to the police. I'm taking out an AVO against the church. 
No, it's not like that. See, how do you respond when life is just so hard and it just is relentless and he's nowhere to be found? Well, you start skipping out, don't you? See, in our greatest hour of need, we want him here and sometimes he doesn't seem to be here. Well, then fast forward a few more hours to verse 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all, they all saw him and were terrified. Shortly before dawn, the fourth watch of the night, they have been up all day. They've been straining at the oars all night. The darkest hour is right before the dawn. By this time, you can assume the disciples aren't making any progress. They've been out there so long and the one they have chosen to follow has deserted them, left them in distress. And now there's a ghost. This has to be the worst night of discipleship in the history of the world. Now there is a ghost and, and, and the word translated ghost is usually translated demon. So this is a real exponential, this is a, this is a real spiritual disaster for them. Physically, spiritually. It doesn't get any worse than this. And we are told they are terrified. They are in terror at seeing this figure. But then Jesus speaks into that. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is Jesus on the water. Now think about that for a moment. And the word here is specifically saying he is on top of the water. He's not swimming out. He is walking on top of the water. Many have tried to explain this away over the centuries. There was a sandbar that was there. And he walked out on a sandbar and it was misty so you couldn't really tell. I tell you what, if the storm is that, even if you're walking on a sandbar out to the boat in a storm like that, well, that's a miracle in itself. No, Jesus is walking on top of the water. And at this point, we should already be thinking to ourselves, well, who can walk on top of water? Well, Job says in Job 9, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And it was very clear and deeply rooted in Jewish understanding that only God had the power to walk upon the top of the water. See, there's something very important going on here. In addition to all the other miracles, should, this should be enough for us to accept that the authority that Jesus had over all creation was not merely as a created human, but as a create, the creator God. But there are two more things going on in here that I want to point you to if you don't even want to accept that. 
And the first one is this very curious statement. And it's a confusing one. Jesus sees them in torment at the oars and finally goes out to them. But what are we told he planned on doing? Pass them by. What is going on there? What is going on here? Doesn't he care? Well, he does care. You see, when the invisible God reveals himself in a visible way, we call it a theophany. And God passes by to reveal his glory and establish his covenant throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, if you remember when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he has him divide uh, the animals in two and, uh, and, and God passes through. But there's two instances I want to go back to to help you see the picture of what's going on here at the lake and why this is so significant in the context of them not believing and having hardened hearts. And the first one is, uh, is in Exodus 33, uh, verses 18 to 23. Moses has come down from Mount Sinai. He encounters what? The people worshipping a golden calf. He's got these tablets of the commandments and he breaks them in fury. He cannot believe what he's witnessing. Moses is in distress. He pleads for their forgiveness to God. God sends a plague and says he will not go with them from now on to the promised land as he might destroy them because of this sin. The Lord calls them a stiff-necked people. But in Moses' distress, we are told this in Exodus 33, 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near, near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. See, God passes by in the moment of Moses' distress, at this point where he doesn't think he can minister to these people anymore. Well, the second instance is when the prophet Elijah flees from Jezebel. And hides in a cave. It's in 1 Kings 19. He hides in a cave. He is in distress being pursued because he is the prophet of God. And the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then we read this in 1 Kings 19, 11 to 13. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the lord but the lord was not in the wind 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, in Elijah's distress, when the ministry has become too much, in Elijah's greatest need, Elijah experiences the theophany of God passing by. God reveals himself to strengthen Moses, to strengthen Elijah for the ministry ahead. In the turmoil of everything that's going on in their ministry and in their life, God reveals himself to bring great peace and to bring reassurance that he is with them and that he will continue to minister with them and to them. Just as we have the doubt of whether we are doing what we should do, God reveals himself. Well, if Jesus walking on water and the passing by isn't enough, well, I hope your hearts will be softened by how Jesus refers to himself. Back in Mark, Mark chapter 6. When he reveals himself, what does he say? He says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now I need to talk about the Greek. I don't do much with the Greek for good reason. Um, But there's a structure in the Greek which is of great importance here. So you can reference yourself in the Greek with the word ego or emi. But Jesus uses them both here where he says, it is I. He puts them together like he is stuttering. You don't use them together. Emi ego is literally, or ego emi. I am, I am. See, this is not what people normally do. But there's a great significance in this expression because the translation of the Old Testament, when God reveals his name, So if we think about those passages, every time it says Lord, it's actually the name God gave Moses, his personal name, Yahweh. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, it is ego emi. See, the Lord, Jesus, is making a clear statement as he does right throughout the book of John. The book of John talks about this over and over, the great I am statements. He is saying, I am. Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. This expression is a clear indication of Jesus revealing who he is. He's encouraging his disciples with the fullness of the revelation of his identity. Your hearts are hardened. You still haven't understood. Well, maybe I will pass you by. And what's the great uh, response that normally happens when God reveals himself to someone? It's fear. It's trembling. And we've seen this over and over in Mark as well, the falling at the feet. Where did this man get this power? Where did he get this teaching? 
I am. See, the human heart is hard towards God. This is the impact of sin. Now, there are people who uh, claim to follow Jesus, but they, they, they deny that he is both God and human. I've just read a book by someone who's in a denomination very close to our denomination, who we would fellowship very clearly with, who's trying to convince everyone that Jesus is not God, that he never claims to be God. It was debated in the third century and it's debated today. There are sects all over the place which don't believe it. But this passage here in three ways, I believe, makes it clear. And Jesus, after great prayer on the mountain, has this great revealing to try to overcome these hardened hearts. Well, in Matthew's account of this passage, he emphasises the response to such a truth about Jesus. Here, Mark is emphasising who Jesus is to answer his big question. In Matthew, he emphasises how are we to respond to such a truth. In Matthew 14, 28 to 32... We're told straight after Jesus says, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus, but he saw the wind. He was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Well, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You see, your faith is as strong as the understanding that you have of the person that you have your faith in. If you do not believe Jesus is God then you do not believe that as a human he can have full rights as the creator. That he has full control, that he is all-knowing, all-sovereign, in control of all things. And your faith will reflect that. You will give him some of your life, but you will believe that the rest of your life is somehow under a better control if you hold on to it. You will be obedient in the places where you can control like a boat. You will never step out of that. Because it's when you take a step out of obedience into a place you have no control over and no light revealing the clarity of the path that that is a real reflection of a faith that understands who your master is. All sovereign, all knowing, in control. He will do all things for the good of those who love him. Now out of today, all I want you to believe is that Jesus is divine. He is fully God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. But secondly, you need to respond to that in faith. 
And that means if he calls you to go, you must go. If he calls you to give, you must give. If he calls you to stay, you must stay. If he calls you in any aspect of your life to do anything, then there's no reason not to because he controls all that. Now, I'm sure I've shared with you, Ellie and I, and I'm not doing this to puff up my own faith, but when, when we finished Bible college... We had very little money in the bank, but we were both convinced that God called us to the northwest of Australia. We had a 15-year-old car or something, a forerunner, got us over the hills and four-wheel driving, and we went. We, were, we had planned to do fruit picking and everything we needed to do to get around Australia to finally get up there. Well, I tell you, we got to the northwest and we didn't work a day. We had a holiday, but we knew when we got there that that's where he wanted us to be. And I don't tell you that because my faith is so amazing. I tell you that because that's the first time that I've actually thought, hmm, maybe God can provide beyond what I ever, ever imagined. See, sacrifice of all things is what he's called us to, to lay down our lives, which we'll come to in a few weeks, to follow him to release control, to surrender all things. And that's the call upon our life. I, I can't put an icing on that, except you will always remain in his favour. You will always be blessed in terms of being blessed, in being aligned with his will. He will always give you what you need, not what you want. And he will always keep you firmly, uh, firmly stayed in the hope for which we are called. And that is a hope of an eternity with him. That we do not belong to this world, but a, a life beyond this world. And we're going to sing a song now. And this song and the band can start coming up if you want. You might not have heard it. You might have heard it. Um, it's a modern song. But I just want to read out some lyrics. And as we sing it or as you... Reflect on it, or as a band sings it, I just want you to really think about these lyrics. It goes, You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise. My soul will rest in your embrace. For I am yours and you are mine. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you'll ne you've never failed me and you won't start now. <laughs>